Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of this channel and assistant professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, I'm excited to be interviewing Diana Sieve Greenwald about her new book, Painting by Numbers, Data-Driven Histories of 19th Century Art, which was published just recently by Princeton University Press in February of 2021. Dr. Greenwald is an art historian and an economic historian, and she's currently the assistant curator of the collection at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Prior to joining the Gardner, she was a Mellon postdoctoral curatorial fellow at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, DC. She received a bachelor's in art history from Columbia University, and then a master's in economic and social history, as well as a doctorate in history from the University of Oxford. The book we'll be discussing today is a groundbreaking blend of art historical and social scientific methods, which charts for the first time the sheer scale of 19th century artistic production. Using new quantitative evidence from more than 500,000 works of art, Diana examines the extent to which art historians have focused on a limited and potentially biased sample of artworks from that period. She addresses longstanding questions about the effects of industrialization, gender, and empire on the art world, and she models more expansive approaches for studying art history in the age of the digital humanities. Upending traditional perspectives on the art historical canon, Painting by Numbers offers an innovative look at the 19th century art world and its legacy. I'm so excited to discuss this book with its author today, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Diana Greenwald, welcome to the show. Hi, Allison. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I want to ask you the traditional first question that I do in these interviews, which is just just kind of give us a little bit of a sense of your background. Um, where did you uh, where were you born? Where did you uh, go to graduate school? I already mentioned it, but maybe you can say a little bit more about this mix of art history and economic history in your background. Um, and then if you might tell us a little bit about how you originally became interested in data driven histories. I'm sure listeners would enjoy hearing about all that. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to share. Um, So I am very proudly a native of New York City. Um, I I grew up on on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which is a great place to be close to lots of fantastic museums. And my love of art history really started um, because I was brought to museums all the time by my parents. As a kid, I even fell into a fountain at the Metropolitan Museum of Art which my parents joke was like sort of a baptism into the profession. Oh I actually, be- I became an intern in the department with the fountain that I fell into. So uh, it all comes full circle. Um, so that was really kind of early life exposure and a lifelong love of, of art from that. And the other factor, which has a lot to do with sort of how I arrived at these approaches is that my father is actually an economist. So in addition to all of these outings to the Met and MoMA and New York's fantastic institutions, um, economics was always at the dinner table. And economic ways of thinking were sort of always present. 
So uh, I've been on something of a parallel track from the very beginning. And when I went to college, that just kept going. So um, I was an art history major as an undergraduate, but I also took a fair amount of calculus and economics and remained interested in that possibility of, I sort of decided to rebel against my father. I was like, I'm not going to be an economist. I'm going to choose another academic discipline, which has got to be the world's nerdiest rebellion. Um, But it turns out I actually also really liked economics. And when uh, I was finishing undergraduate, I, I wrote a senior thesis that dealt with landscapes in the American West and the context of kind of broader economic development. And I realized there were ways to sort of combine my economic interests and my art history interests. And that really came to fruition when I realized that economic and social history, um, which I'm happy to talk a little bit more about, I think people often think it's just the history of markets, but it's, it's the history of many things. Um, often through a quantitative lens, but that's really a distinct discipline in the United Kingdom in a way that it's not necessarily in the U.S. In the U.S., it tends to be economists looking at historical subject matter in a very, very quantitative way. It's a little bit more interdisciplinary in the U.K. And so um, that was a real aha moment for me when I did my master's degree in the U.K. and realized that I could combine the fact that I love spreadsheets and I love paintings (laughs) and they didn't think I was crazy for, for wanting to do those two things. Um, So if it's helpful, um, I think something that also happened, which is like, honestly, good luck, right place, right time is that um, I was a first year master's student at Oxford. I wasn't even sure I was gonna go on to do a PhD one day. I sort of had applied to a series of fellowships as an undergraduate, didn't get the fellowships, but did get into Oxford. And I was choosing between graduate school and being a ski bum in Colorado. And my parents urged me to please go to Oxford, which I did, which was the, which ended up being the right choice. Um, but when I got there and I shared this interest in landscapes and sort of social and economic change with one of my advisors there, um, she said, oh, well, you know, there's this index. Uh, it's a manuscript. It's sitting in the art library, the the Sackler Library um, at Oxford, and you could use it to find landscapes. It'll help you find all these landscapes that were shown at the Paris Salon, because I said I wanted to do a French setting this time around instead of an American setting like my senior thesis. So I went to the library. I found this manuscript, which was actually in the rare book holdings. And what it turned out to be was this incredible resource, hundreds of typed pages, where a scholar named John Whiteley had basically applied keywords to the titles of all 150,000 plus paintings ever shown at the Unitary Paris Salon. He did this based on exhibition catalogs. And my 
data antenna from my economics training and from the fact that I was in a required quantitative methods course where we talked about how to create and use historical data sets just went off. And it was this moment where I realized all these finding aids, all these things that art historians, these lists that they've been creating for decades were actually untapped data sources. Um, and from there, it just sort of snowballed. Oh, I'm, so, I'm so glad that you're describing essentially what was already my next question, you know, was it about where the book came from. I think you've gotten us a good amount of the way in. I love, too, that you shared with me and with listeners that your your father was an economist. Uh, I read the acknowledgments, or I guess reread them this morning, and was really struck by... Um, I don't know if I should talk about the acknowledgments in an interview like this. We should get into the heart of the matter. But you talk about writing your dissertation, sitting with him often at cafes and things. And um, now hearing, you know, that he's an economist, it sort of is all coming together in my mind. I like this idea of a baptism in the (laughs) fountain that you fell into as well. Um, And I have to say, I'm so glad that you didn't choose the ski bum in Colorado route because this book and what you've already been describing in terms of finding this index and being in classes that set you up and having these mentors that guided you fortuitously as you're describing. I mean, the book that you have produced is everything I said in the intro. It's innovative. It's really breathtaking. It opens all sorts of new directions. It's a, it's a really exciting read. I, and you know, maybe I'm someone who's already drunk the Kool-Aid because I too am very interested in this kind of data-driven analysis, but I don't have the chops that you have. So it really grounded me in all this stuff that I need to learn about. And I'm sure would do the same thing for, for anyone else picking it up. I feel like I should probably tell listeners generally the kind of scope of the book, and then maybe we can dive into chapter one. You've already kind of been describing some of the data sets that you used, and I hope you might say a little bit more about it. I apologize if I cut you off before you were going to keep going. No, no, this is great. um, So the book is centered around five total chapters, and then it has a conclusion. And very importantly, it has something that's a little bit unusual in art history books. Those though monographs sometimes have them, and this is appendices. And you have seven of them. And they are for readers of footnotes like you and I, because I saw also that in your acknowledgments, you mentioned that, that you're an avid reader of the footnotes. And I too, along the way, learned that often the good stuff is snuck into these little notes at the end. But I think you sneak so much good stuff into these appendices. And I have, once we kind of get into things, maybe a few questions about what I discovered just from learning um, and reading that what, what the material that is put in this back matter. But the first chapter is called, What is a Data-Driven History of Art? And I think this is such an important question. You do a beautiful job unpacking it in the chapter. It's obviously not possible in whatever time you're going to take now to answer this question fully, but can you describe a little bit the groundwork that you lay in this chapter? Um, Because I imagine this might be what a lot of professors assign and things to students who want to learn about how to do this kind of work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm happy to talk about it. So for me, a data-driven history of art is really a zoomed out history of art, right? So, and I'll preface this with the fact that like, I am now a curator. I love objects. I love looking closely at objects, right? 
But when in art history, we're, our analyses are driven by series of close looking or series of tight studies on select artists, you're inevitably limited to a certain degree on the, about the, you're limited by a certain amount of volume that you can comprehend and engage with. You know, there are only so many canvases that you can look at closely and integrate into an analysis. Now, one of the great lessons that I learned doing economic and social history and being co-supervised by an economist and an art historian is that often there's a shortcut to understanding kind of broader trends and lots of information, and that is a statistical approach. And just because something is traditionally quant- is traditionally qualitative, be it, let's say, the history of literature or of art or, um, well, those are good examples, doesn't mean that you can't zoom out and use statistics to look at overviews of these histories and try and expand the sample, and this is something I'm quite passionate about, of which works of art we consider and we study. And the first thing that I think is really important, and when you kind of get to that data portion of a data-driven history of art, is that there actually is huge amounts of information about works of art that were produced in the 19th century. God bless cheap printing technology and lots of all those little pamphlets that list artist, title, date, etc. Indeed. And these are trace records of artistic production that is, quite frankly, since dropped off the face of the earth. And so the only way to recover that mass of information and then to comprehend it is to use a data-driven statistical approach. Mm-hmm. And then we can, and we can talk about next steps, but that this suddenly kind of opens up all sorts of new possible methods as well. But I think it's that expansion of the sample of what we study and that recapturing of lost production that for me is the most important part of a data-driven history of art. Yeah. I'm so glad that you mentioned sort of the cheap printing technology and the amount of source material that's available because I, I did latch on very much as a 19th century specialist myself on what you said about the 19th century art world being just so well suited for this type of approach. Because I found that very much in my own work. Um, it, It almost is like you start realizing you could do this work. The longer you're in the 19th century, the more you start to go, oh, well, I could do this because there's this data. And oh, well, this catalog raisonne allows me to, like you said, zoom out and, and really ask some different questions and think differently about which works we study, as you said, exactly. Um, I have a bad habit of having this whole plan and having all these notes I'm looking at and the book, of course, in front of me. And then something you say makes me want to skip way ahead um, and, and throw everything out the window. So I guess that's, I guess that's what I'm going to do, as I always seem to. Um, but mentioning as you did... Well, you said first, I love spreadsheets and I love paintings, which made me smile uh, sort of as a a fellow nerd without all the quantitative chops that you have. Um, But then you also said 
specifically as a curator, and it makes me smile to hear it, I love objects. And this gets us into something that you say, let's see, it's in chapter two, where you make this really important point about not losing sight of objects, not losing sight of the individuals. I think you say each data point in economics represents a human reality. And I felt very touched by this. And I have to say, having read the book, I think you do an extraordinary job of exactly as you said, not losing sight of the objects, the individuals, the human reality behind this massive amount of data that you're analyzing through these various indexes and resources that you digitize. I'm trying to think what my question is here. I don't know, maybe, maybe can you just speak to that? Because I think you're so right that the loss of the object, the loss of the humanity is maybe one of the greatest dangers of doing this kind of work. So perhaps any advice you might have on how we make sure we don't do that. Yeah, absolutely. So on the flip side of all the things that I gained from having some training in economics and from doing this very particular academic path that combined historical and and economic approaches, you also end up exposed within the economic discipline or areas of economic history to the fact that people get obsessed with statistical validity, as big a data set as possible, that it has to be a clean statistical identification. Um, And there's this incredible flattening of all the human realities that are behind that data. And then my friends and colleagues who are economists will get upset because it messes with basically their regression analyses, right? But I think what art historians are very good at is embracing that messiness, spending time with an object, letting it unfold, spending time with a historical figure who might be a very complicated person who produced amazing work, but was pretty awful. (laughs) And so... Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's that engagement with the human messiness that art historians can bring to the table and kind of pull some of the economic stuff back from just an obsession with making sure the stats work at the expense of answering the kind of more difficult human questions. Mm -hmm. And so the way I try to do that, and whenever I, I talk to people about trying to do this work, um, and it can sometimes be daunting, but is to oscillate between different levels of views. So if you're at the bird's eye view with the statistics and you're getting to learn all about, let's say, the projection of rural genre painting in 19th century France and the top level trends are really interesting, it's important to then, when possible, when the art exists, which it turns out is often a minority of the time or is in an accessible public collection, to go behind those trends and understand the variation between the data points. So now I'm jumping out, but there's a moment in chapter three where I compare two images of gleaners, one by Jean-Francois Millet, or Millet, I think as we're now saying, and uh, Jules Breton. They're basically one salon exhibition apart. One is 1857, one is 1859. They couldn't present more different views of what it means to be a gleaner in 19th century France, but in the data, they're virtually identical. 
And so without taking the time to really know some of that detail that's beneath the surface of the broader trend, um, I think you risk incorrect conclusions in the same way that a scholar who might focus on a very narrow sample of work and generalize from it also risks incorrect conclusions. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you mentioned this comparative example and the work that you do in chapter three specifically on I've always heard it, Mie, but now, now I'm questioning myself. Mie, Mile, we, we, we apologize if we're mispronouncing it, even though we're 19th century specialists. I think, so I think it's, if it's French, it's Mie, it's Mie, but apparently if you were Norman, you might have said Mile. Oh, okay. I, well, I've, I've heard, anyway, I, I won't, I won't give the definitive answer on this. <laughs> I'll wait for someone to email me afterwards and say, get it right, lady. This is how you say it. So, what do you do in chapter three blew my mind in several regards. And I think the first, well, at least the first moment that I wrote in the margin, whoa, in that chapter was when you were talking about the way that focusing as we do in art history and in 19th century studies in particular on artists like Mie and Corbet, kind of exclusively to a large extent or really heavily creates sample bias. And you know, this already led me to think, whoa, she's about to do something really cool that's, that's going to be really exciting. And you go on to talk about this inaccurate perception that occurs. If you look at their examples of rural genre painting, you kind of assume that it must be quite ubiqui ubiquitous in the 19th century. And what you show in this chapter is that it isn't nearly as ubiquitous as we thought it was. And then you go on to show that, not to give too much away, spoiler alert, in case you're like wanting to read this book and, and be on the edge of your seat for what she discovers, but you say and show uh, that there's no correlation between urbanization rates, i.e. the rate at which cities are becoming industrialized and the countryside too, and the frequency of rural genre painting, which for ages has been something that art historians just thought. I mean, they thought, oh, well, they're they're painting more of these rural genre scenes because the world is changing and moving away from that. There's a kind of like pre-nostalgia that's happening here. But by doing the zoom out analysis that you do, you're able to essentially prove that we need to look again at that notion and reassess what's actually happening and all of the, the nitty gritty of it, including how you run regressions and you think about correlations and so on and so forth. But then you go on as if that wasn't enough. It's like the chapter could have ended there for me and I would have been like, whoa, this, this book is amazing. But then you go on to do a whole separate analysis of Mie's letters, which had me kind of kicking myself and thinking, how did I not think of this? You know, and so what I, what I want you to do, if you will, is maybe explain as best you can in an, in an informal way, how you arrived at this groundbreaking conclusion that subverts this notion that urbanization and rural genre painting are, are linked in the way that we thought they were. And then can you describe what you did with the letters? I, don't, I won't even say because it, it's so cool. And I think we should start doing it pervasively to make the kind of discoveries that you did. Um, thank, yeah, I'm happy to talk through it. Um, so this really goes back to my master's thesis and that, um, that amazing index. And again, I want to give credit to John Whiteley, who unfortunately passed away last year, but who 
assembled this index as a PhD student of Francis Haskell. As far as I can tell, he was being hazed. He did this pre-computers. So he did it with index cards. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Um, And so it's only because of John's work and his tagging of all these different paintings based on their titles that this analysis is even possible. Um, So it's funny that you talked about loving footnotes in the beginning. I'll give another brief shout out to a professor of mine at Columbia, Professor Zoe Struther, who's the first person to teach me to really read people's footnotes. um, Because it was in reading the footnotes of the, this really foundational literature in the social history of art that proposes these relationships between images of nature and industrialization that you described, that you realize what those conclusions are grounded in are quite a narrow sampling of quotations and really are focused on Mier, Courbet, this roster of artists. Um, and then everyone cites each other, right? So there's there's mm-hmm. a kind of there's some primary source, and then everyone starts citing each other once, you know, once T.J. Clark and Bob Herbert and all these guys publish very successful works. And so, I guess being an annoying young scholar, this was an invitation to me <laughs> with this new <laughs> data set in hand to fact check it to see um, if this described relationship held up because suddenly I had data about rural genre painting beyond these handful of artists, right. That I could put in conversation statistically, that is with really good data about the development of France in the 19th century. Cause part of the problem with the absolutely groundbreaking and fantastic Um, social histories of art, but, you know, there is this sort of fatal flaw in that you're going from very narrow formal analysis and then describing huge changes in in French society and the economy. And basically the scale of the evidence doesn't necessarily match. But when you suddenly have data about the French art world, you can make it speak to the data about the French economy. And so this was really exciting. Now, the first thing that happened, which I wasn't expecting either, was that there just wasn't nearly as much rural genre painting as I thought. It's something, it averages around 2% a year. I mean, it's really quite small, which was fascinating and is kind of like the first moment where I too was like, whoa, I think this might be something. The second step to that was, okay, We have this kind of low-level trend, but there is some variation. And there's a lot more landscape painting, I should say. There's quite a bit of landscape painting, all the way up to about 30% of of works shown at the salon in in a given year. But the next step was, can I see any changes in the art world that can be linked specifically to changes in the broader economy? Can I test this theory? And... What ended up happening is that the standard explanations that it was urbanization, industrialization, writ large, don't actually hold up. Mm-hmm. What was driving a lot of this change is it ends up being a little bit banal, but you know, for those of us who might have to commute to work, let's say it's not surprising, um, is that artists were moving to places 
outside of Paris, but within easy reach of Paris. So it got cheaper to go to and from Paris and the countryside. So you could basically live in Barbizon, but never abandon your artistic community, your dealers, your patrons in Paris proper. And facilitated by this railroad access, basically, you had artist colonies like Barbizon, like Chaillambière, you know, there are Norman colonies, Breton colonies, and they're extremely productive. And we know this from the economics of creativity that working in a cluster is really, really productive. And so you have these kind of satellite clusters of artists around Paris who are basically looking for a cheap place to live. And that happens to be near Fontainebleau. And they paint what they see. And that's the statistical effect that comes through. So it's actually facilitated by industrialization. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily a reaction against. And then the Mier thing that I really wanted to use to check this is there was, um, there's a huge gift of his letters that went to the Louvre that's in the Cabinet des Dessins. It's very well cataloged. So I could do my own keyword analysis of a corpus of his letters and what he wrote about, what he discussed. And for the kind of typical, archetypical peasant painter, he's really obsessed with Paris. <laughs> it comes up a lot. He's going to and from Paris all the time. He's into the salon. He is asking his dealer for money on the regular. And he's not talking about Normandy. He's not really talking about these nostalgic themes that we've attributed to him in his paintings. And what ends up emerging is an image of a pretty modern artist who does have moments of reflection where he thinks back and he thinks about why is he painting Barbizon and why are these peasants sort of closer to real life, etc. But by volume of discussion, it's really about going to and from Paris and selling enough art to support his family. Mm-hmm. Talk about keeping us in touch with the human or the humanity, you know, making sure that doesn't get obscured is so clear in what you've just described. And I, I know what I'm asking you to do in terms of summarizing these chapters and, and what you're doing in them is difficult. So I appreciate the, the way that you are. But, you know, thinking about such human elements as well, it got cheaper to travel out to the countryside. Um, again, it just it makes you sort of kick yourself like, oh man, why, why did I never think of that? It, of course, you know, that, that that's an effect of industrialization and a very human element. A lot of these artists are struggling a lot of the time, especially those that are not Mihai and Corbet and having the successes in one-man shows and things that they did. Um, so it, it makes so much sense when you look at the data and pull from it what you do in terms of these very human realities. The same with the letters in terms of, you know, thinking about them in terms of keywords. What does he talk about? What does he mention? And how does that show what's important to him as a man, as, as an artist? Um, it's just such a unique thing that you do in this book. I I don't know what I was quite expecting when I opened it, but I imagined it was going to be a lot of charts and graphs and that I might struggle sort of to 
I, I like to thumb through a book and try to guess what they're going to argue just based on the images. And it's something I have students do sometimes, like, can we guess where what the thesis is going to be here from what they're putting next to each other? And I was very pleasantly surprised by the number of paintings you reproduced. And I now understand why in terms of constantly returning us to actually fresh interpretations of specific works of art by both canonical and less canonical artists themselves. This leads me, I feel like I could ask you so many questions from there, but I, I do want to get into chapter four. Not that I want to say it was my favorite, but it was the one I think I was most looking forward to. I have a little bit of a personal obsession with Lily Martin Spencer, who's an artist that you, <laughs> Diana's giving me double thumbs up. And we, have, we are able to see each other when we're doing this, even though the, the, there's no video recording. Don't ask me for video of these. We have to just keep them audio. Um, but you do something similar in the next chapter, which is called and I love the title, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists, which is, of course, a nod to Linda Nochlin's very famous uh, essay. And then the subtitle is Artistic Labor and Time Constraint in 19th Century America, which gives away a good amount what you end up sort of focusing on and, and parsing through in this chapter. But you do something similar in terms of landing on a specific artist that you use the analysis of the data that you've done to draw some new things out. And and you actually posit a, a really fresh interpretation of a work by Spencer in terms of analyzing women's time constraints. And, and um, I feel like I'm giving away the whole book, but I, I can't help but talk about it. But um, the amount of still life paintings and paintings that are less time heavy in terms of how long they take to produce. So um was it, I guess I want to ask, was it hard in any way or did it, where did it come in the process to stay so closely in touch with specific works, say by Mie um, or specific works like this by Spencer? And there are other examples of this. I love your nod in the first chapter to Degas. And you mentioned that he's a problematic artist, which I super appreciate uh, given the work that I'm doing right now. And not everybody makes that nod, so that was very important. But did you conceive from the beginning of constantly toggling in this way between the zoomed out data-driven history that you're building and these kind of case studies on specific works? Or did that come late in the conceptualization of the book? Um, that's a great question. And it's one that I have to go backwards to answer to okay. a certain extent. And and that's and it and it has to do sort of with the French chapter, but also when I got started as a younger doctoral student. So um, I will give a shout out to peer review at the Art Bulletin, who <laughs> accused me of being mean to T.J. Clark and also told me statistics were boring in one oh of my, my submissions. Whoa. I know. I was like, T.J. Clark can take it. Um, no, but. Uh, I learned through peer review processes, through presentations, that if I just got up there with a regression table and graphs and I was like, this is what it's like, this is it, there were a couple of flaws with that. One is that it's alienating to just have a bunch of regression tables up there. Um, the second is that presenting statistics as if they're objective truth and not acknowledging the importance of the work in art history 
is a very quick way to make people turn off and not be excited about the work. So from basically the time I started doing sort of pre-docs and stuff in 2015, I'm going to give another mentor shout out to Eleanor Jones Harvey, who's a senior curator at SAM, at Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington, who really helped me work through some of this. I had to learn to be a diplomat in order to make the methods effective. And so part of that, for lack of a better term, shtick at the beginning was showing people that I had been an art history major, that I could do formal analysis, that I did know how to be an art historian before I went off and did this economic stuff. And I wasn't just some interloping economist to tell them they were all wrong about everything. Mm-hmm. And so it started as something, honestly, a little bit performative in presentations. And then I realized it had huge analytical power that actually what it was doing was helping me validate and better understand these broader trends that I was seeing in the statistics. So it became, by the time I was actually writing the book and was finishing my dissertation, or I'd fin- you know, sort of as I got to be a more mature doctoral candidate, and then when I turned to the book, I knew that every chapter, every case study had to have this type of element in it, or it just wasn't effective. So um, I hope that answers the question. Oh, it definitely does. And and I think you're right that it does have huge analytical power. I, it, I mean, it, I don't know. Every chapter I read, it just was it was like a one two punch. I don't know how else to describe it. It's like it's like some sort of beautiful jujitsu move to watch because you do this initial thing, which is what we've been describing in terms of these data-driven analyses. You talk about sample bias, you run regression analyses, stuff that is harder, I think, for those of us who don't have any sort of background in economics to understand, though you do explain it all very carefully in a way that made me feel like, oh, I get this. Okay, I'm not lost. But then the, the sort of uppercut that comes at the end Um, or that you move towards in the second half or the last pages of each chapter is this thing that's so much more familiar and that really activates what came before it in such a way that, that it's like tying a bow at the, on, on a present, you know, each one just, it really confirms in a way that was really gratifying for, for me, at least as a reader. Um, I'm glad too. Now, now I'm glad I asked you about this because this idea of being a diplomat, I don't think happens enough especially, or we don't talk about it enough in terms of being young scholars, junior scholars, graduate students, especially if you're working at the cutting edge of methodologies or you're bringing in, um, you know, I work in masculinity studies and sometimes that isn't as well received. And you do have to develop this ability to talk to the status quo such that the convincing to move the field in these new directions happens. So I hope maybe graduate students or undergrads who are listening are inspired a little bit to hear you and I will confirm, say that you you have to be a diplomat. You can't just, you know, come in running brazen and expect everybody to just accommodate the, especially the new stuff that you're doing. Um, Can we talk a little bit more about the content of this chapter in terms of For me, the big discovery in this one, aside from the really 
wonderful stuff you do on Spencer. And, and I think I'm going to assign this chapter probably in courses that I teach where I cover her because it's a, it's a great new case study for thinking about her life and her work and why she worked on what she did at what rates and so on and so forth. But you talk in this chapter about subjects again. So the content of works of art, similar to the chapter before, though now the, the switches from rural genre paintings and landscapes much more to still life paintings, which are what women were predominantly producing. Spencer's a little bit of a, an aberration in this regard because she's so much heavy into genre painting. Do you mind? I won't give it away. Will you give away the big discovery in this chapter and how you arrived at it by looking, I think it's at the Mets data, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely happy, happy to talk about it. Um, because this is a podcast and I can give a little bit of the color behind it. And again, it's one of these serendipitous moments. Um, as a curatorial fellow at the National Gallery of Art, something that often gets assigned to, let's say, the more junior curatorial staff is cataloging. Mm -hmm. And so I actually ended up with this project where I was cataloging a gift um, from Bill and Abby Gertz of American still, 19th century American still life painting that came to one of the departments that I was working for. And I realized at first, just anecdotally, as I was going through this collection, how many more women there were in this collection of still life painting um, than there seemed to be in the broader 19th century American collection. I also was assisting with a show with some fantastic Gorilla Girls prints in it and that that features in the book. Oh yeah, so, that'll do it. <laughs> yeah, that nothing will have your antenna on for like, you know, looking being on a on a feminist quest to find sources of iniquities in the art world like um, mm. dealing with the Gorilla Girls. So, I was doing this cataloging and I realized what seemed to be this difference anecdotally and then I noticed that I actually had the data. <laughs> I remembered that I had the data to see if what I was seeing in this one collection where women were very present in still life and less present in the other areas of the NGA's 19th century American art holdings, if this reflected actual 19th century realities. Um, and so the first thing, which will be a surprise to no one, is that women are pretty active in the 19th century art world and this activity is not at all reflected in the rates at which they're collected in major museum collections, be it the NGA, the Met, the MFA Boston, they're just not nearly as present on the walls of museums as they were on the walls of, let's say, the National Academy of Design, the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, et cetera. But if we get below this disconnect, the still life thing sort of bore out. And it showed that both in the 19th century, women were much more active in still life painting and in museum collections, they are better represented among still life holdings than say among the portraiture or landscape that museums are holding. Now the kicker is that museums don't, don't collect a heck of a lot of still life and therefore- There it is. <laughs> yep. And so then you realize that there is this genre discrimination, which is fueling, you know, basically sexist discrimination and collecting, and that the two are intertwined. And I should add, this also applies um, to works on paper. Um, 
We know that works on paper holdings and collections are generally more diverse in terms of the gender and ethnicity of makers, and yet works on paper, and for very good conservation reasons, I can hear the paper conservators who helped train me to handle art at the National Gallery of Art yelling in my ear, you know, are not on view all the time, but they're, um, because light is detrimental to them, but nonetheless, this is another area of art, in this case, by medium rather than genre discrimination that gets less attention, and as a result, um, is discriminatory. Mm-hmm. I've lashed on to this idea of genre discrimination, which is so close to gender discrimination. You're switching a couple of letters around there that I want to make it like a hashtag now. I don't know. I'm going I'm to have a week in my women's experience in art class where we talk about hashtag genre discrimination, which is, is what you're describing and this kind of crazy fact that... Um, I'm, I mean, I'm looking at the numbers. I have them written down in, in my notes. You say, still life paintings are a rarity among the fine arts holdings of the Met's American wing, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, i.e. only 1.8% of the works. Therefore, a genre in which women are disproportionate, disproportionately active, i.e. they're making a lot of the, that kind of painting, is also disproportionately under collected relative to the amount that they were producing them and displaying them and selling them in in the 19th century itself. Wow. Yeah, I just I wrote in the margin. Wow. When I came across that line and and then you transfer that into this analysis of something we've long known about in art history, which is that women are more constrained in terms of their time. Uh, this invaluable resource. I mean, talk from an economist perspective, from any perspective, time is the ultimate unrenewable resource for all of us humans and women, because as you described, because of especially the amount of time devoted to domestic responsibilities and childcare, just inherently in the 19th century, especially, but we know this is still true today, to have less of this resource and therefore have to move towards kinds of painting like still life that are quicker, that don't demand uh, a person, if it's a portrait in front of them, that aren't these grand history paintings of the 19th century that are 16 by 25 feet and therefore take massive amount of time and materials to produce and, and so on and so forth. I think, if I might, I want to switch gears and ask, I don't know if these are these are more like general questions, but they, they popped up as I was reading. And one of them was... Just kind of what's the hardest thing about doing this kind of work? Um, so I want to start with what's not the hardest thing, because I think people are going to expect me to say, oh, it's like learning econometrics or it's like taking a statistics class. And it turns out that's not the hardest thing because you don't necessarily need to do that. Mm-hmm. I want to emphasize that one of the lessons I learned is doing all the more complex statistics didn't necessarily get me much further in terms of the effectiveness of my argument or sometimes even the conclusions as a simple line graph did. Mm -hmm. So honestly, just you can do it in Excel, Um, just doing the line graphs, you can learn a ton by zooming out. And so I just like to say it's far more accessible to do this work than I think people understand. Now, the hardest part is 
honestly, data acquisition and transcription. Now, art historians, what they sort of haven't realized is that because they've been creating all these finding aids for decades, be it in kind of that dusty list in some appendix and some monograph, whether it's the catalog raisonné, whether it's online museum collections, there are actually tons of data sources out there. A fair number of them are hard copy, though. And so that can be either extremely time-consuming to transcribe yourself, or, and I'm quite upfront about this in the book, I used grants to hire uh, professional transcriptionists so that maybe I did about 20% of my data transcription myself, and the other 80 I was able, because I was at an institution with good support and because I got pre-docs and as a pre-doc was able to like crash with aunts and uncles for free while I was on these pre-docs, just use that money to, um, to really speed along this process. And that's, that's a real barrier in terms of resources, um, which I think is one of the hardest parts, especially because when you're investing in that work, you don't necessarily know what the payoff is going to be. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit risky. I wondered if that might be your answer. I didn't know what it was going to be. Obviously, that's why I asked. But um, I'm glad you answered what was going to be a sort of follow-up for me, which is this idea of can someone without a background in economics do this work? And you've already said definitively, no, you can You can discover a lot through you know just kind of the basic math that we learn to do and plugging numbers into an Excel spreadsheet, which I've gotten, I think, pretty good at. And I think you're right. You can, you can do a large amount, though your training so evidently does push things into arenas that I just never, I just don't know anything about. Though maybe other people have more training in basic social sciences stuff than, than I do. It could just be personal. But I'm glad that you mentioned, and you talk about this more, I should point the readers in the direction of, this is a lot of what she's describing is in the first appendix, where you talk about hiring a freelancer using grant money to use OCR, optical character recognition, which I've also used for some other projects. Um, though I have to admit, it doesn't work as well in Cyrillic <laughs> than it does on, on Latin letters, so just FYI, in case anyone's wondering. Um, but using OCR to transform the hard copy whitely index that you've already talked about into these spreadsheets so that you could work with the data. Obviously, outsourcing labor is is not feasible for all of us, especially if you're you're not, or maybe you might be writing grant applications, but not necessarily getting them. So I I wanted to ask what your advice would be, and maybe it's a two-pronged question because having tried to do this myself, never having thought to hire somebody, I, I took Edward Manet's catalog raisonné and and pulled all the data from it, just entry by entry, and put it into a spreadsheet and was terrified the whole time I did it that one little mistake could add up to 10 little mistakes could really skew my data when I, when I went and ran the analysis. And you talk about this too, that errors in transcription are inevitable. It's just a part of it. And you, know, you check and you recheck, but they're there. So could you speak to advice in terms of what do we do if we can't uh, afford to hire someone like this or can't get grants and we're trying? And and what do you do about these errors? Do you live in terror of them like I do? Um, I'll start with the first question, which is that, um, so part of the reason I needed grants and I really needed help 
was the scale of the resources I was trying to digitize. So I don't want people to think the only way to have impact is to go out and digitize half a million records. Um, like that's yeah. not, it, 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 that happened because I had the time and luxury of being in my PhD because I found all of these resources and because quite frankly, I got obsessed with recapturing the contours of this 19th century art world that I felt was sort of below the water. And I had only ever really learned about the tip of the iceberg. Um, So the first thing is that that scale, that order of magnitude isn't necessary, whether it's a catalog raisonne of a few hundred works by the way, I love that you've done this with Manet. We have to talk. We we have to download about Manet at another Me point. Too. He's one of yeah. my current interests. Um, but the, you know, I recently co-authored an article with um, Nika Elder, who's an assistant professor at American University, about John Singleton Copley's portrait sitters and mm. their relationships to slavery, and. That's a data set of about 280 people, observations, um, that Nico basically came to me with, that she'd worked on herself and with the help of research assistants, like student research assistants. Um, But, you know, 280 is a pretty feasible number to transcribe and research and work on, yet there's huge amounts of learning there just from graphing a couple hundred things. Now, if you're focused on something that's, say, 30 works, you probably don't need a graph and you don't need a spreadsheet. But if you're getting up there in the hundreds, it's A, attainable in terms of data work, and B, you can learn something from that zoomed out view. So I think part of it is choosing your sweet spot. Now, with the error question, uh, I do live in fear of errors. <laughs> I have found them. I have, you know, had them pointed out to me. Um, and something that I really try to focus on is that this is a process where I want people to engage with the data. I want it to be improved. I am one person to do these spot checks, and I will inevitably fail at them. And so, I really think of data sets as living, breathing things. And part of that point of view helps you accept that they will change over time. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, economists are very comfortable with something that they call the natural rate of error, um, which is that there will be these problems. And as long as the problems, and I can give kind of there are some sort of horrific examples from economics where it went like way off the rails and someone had put like a sum in place of an average and some spreadsheet and it like totally changed the results. But in general, in economic history, and actually a good example of this is the work of Thomas Piketty, um, the French economist who has worked a lot on inequality when his book came out, which I'm now searching for the name for. It was like a big deal. Anyway, um, he got error checked to death because he was dealing with issues of inequality. It was quite controversial. It was considered quite left wing. Um, Now those small changes didn't really affect the overall trends. And that's usually what ends up happening. That if it's a handful of errors, it's not going to move the needle in a way that's going to change the levels of what you're seeing. 
So really economists focus on kind of levels and trend, not that like one point. Got it. Again, don't replace your average with a sum, yeah. then you're in trouble. But <laughs> when it comes to data transcription, it's okay if there are some things that that slip because it happens to everyone. And for the most part, it won't change the bottom line conclusion of the analysis. Mm-hmm. I like what you said so much about the data being a kind of living, breathing organism and and one that has a collectivity to it where we can add, you know, the more brains that look over the numbers, the more the it'll become more and more perfect or more and more accurate as, as you know, the, the natural errors are, are discovered. I also want to give a big shout out to Diana for saying this, this thing about wanting people to engage with the data. And the book itself makes that abundantly clear at several points. I think it's also in Appendix A that you say that your hope is that releasing the data will inspire other scholars interested in this kind of work to continue it. Um, And I should point out that Diana has not not sort of locked her data away. All this amazing transcription that was done by the scholars, not scholars, but the freelancers that you hired to do it, you've made it all available. You just have to get a copy of the book and then you get links to this work and you can continue it by picking up, you know, sort of and doing different things with it. So thank you for, for doing that. It's a very generous move to make as a scholar and, and one that also gave me pause in terms of, okay, you know, she's really invested in this growing as a field, as a new methodological drive within the field. So yeah, that was really nice. I have taken up a lot of your time. I'm looking at the clock like, oh my gosh, I, I this always happens. I wish I could ask you a bazillion more questions, but I would like to ask the traditional last question, and you've already hinted at it a little bit, but what are you working on now? I imagine you have tons of things in the pipeline, but sometimes after you finish a first book, you kind of retreat a little bit. And so this could go either way. What do we have to look forward to from Diana C. Greenwald? Um, So I have a few things in the pipeline. I just mentioned that article that came out in Winter's Portfolio. with Nika Elder, I'm, we were, were very excited about it. Something that happened as I was presenting this work, as I was writing the book and whatnot, is suddenly everyone came out of the woodwork and was like, I have data. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and something that I would like to, to point out and about this collaborative effort in releasing the data is um, economists are very good at co-authoring. It's like just standard. You just know that you're more efficient if you co-author. I think art historians are starting to get there, but it's still not the norm. And that being said, like I'm a single author on this book, right? So um, Nika came to me. We became co-authors. I'm working on co-authoring an article with a colleague named Kari Rayner, who's an assistant conservator at the Getty Museum. Conservators have tons of data, um, which you can think of in really interesting ways from art historical points of view. And, and, you know, and basically using a data-driven approach lets you speak to some of the conservation data and this technical art history in a way that I'm really excited about. Um, So those are some academic collaborations. I am now an assistant curator who has like a real grown-up job who has to go to meetings, <laughs> who's expected to do things. Um, so I have, a, I have a couple of shows coming down the line, um, which is really fun. But I think the thing that 
and it links to museum work. And it's something that I've become passionate about working in museums is one of the most untapped data sets um, or kind of categories of untapped data sets is the digitized museum collection. So for those of you out there who might have been a curatorial assistant or who have been an intern in a museum or whatnot, maybe you were forced to work with a software called TMS, the museum system. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes. Everyone's favorite piece of software, um, which is basically an online, it's a collection management system. And so it was used to catalog collections, track their locations, and really support all the online collection source um, searches that we've come to know and love. Now, TMS and kind of linked products export to spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. So what it means is that, let's say a standard museum, now the gardener is an exception to this rule. We have everything on view all the time. But most museums, you are seeing a fraction of their holdings. And one way to grasp the breadth of what's there and also what's in storage and what's not on view is this museum data. And so I work with it a little bit in chapter four, like we talked about with the Met and putting the Met in conversation with the National Academy of Design. But um, something I'm, I'm trying to think about at least for next projects is how to really use that data to talk about institutional formation the history of taste, really digging into these canon formation questions, because I think the data is there and it's digitized. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, it's often open access because it's already on museums' websites. Um, And so that's what I've been thinking over, how how to best leverage that data. Oh, those sound like such juicy, juicy projects. I can't wait for each one. And I'm sure many of us can't wait to travel up to places like Boston again and see some of the shows that you're putting together as as a curator at The Gardener. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you about your book today. I, you know I was excited about this one and it, it did not disappoint. I, I, I appreciate so much you taking the time out to discuss this with me and, and for our listeners. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. All right, everybody, you've been listening to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Allison Lee, and I've been talking to Diana Sieve Greenwald about her amazing new book, Painting by Numbers, Data-Driven Histories of 19th Century Art. Thanks so much for listening.